Hello and welcome to the Cast Iron Theatre podcast. Uh, we will be speaking to many a person who is an actor, a writer, a director, a singer, an improviser, a workshop leader, a producer. If you're living in Brighton, working in Brighton, or indeed if just one of your tour dates is in Brighton, we will be sure to be chatting to you. We've been having a very busy weekend as part of Hove Grown in Brighton uh, with our cast iron nine collection of uh, short plays that had got lots of lovely feedback and it was interesting to note that um not intentionally but there seemed to be a growing theme uh in the plays that we displayed last night and on friday night they all they, some were funny some were angry some were serious some were silly but they all seemed to be somewhat bitterly cynical and about a dystopia about being careful about future events and how we treat one another and I guess continuing themes and shared themes against different plays is something that I'm going to be talking to our guest today uh Rob Cohen is it Rob Cohen or Robert Cohen or I know it's on your website Bobby Cohen um well let's see uh I was officially christened Robert um, my family have always called me Bobby. Uh, a lot of people call me Rob. Uh, I just introduce myself as Robert, and people can take it from there, call me whatever they want, within reason. Fantastic, yes. Mm. Um, I've always been called Andrew or Andy, mm-hmm. and I don't particularly know which one I prefer. I don't think I have any preference. Uh, Andrew, I'm of Irish heritage, mm-hmm. apparently. Andrew uh, is of Scottish heritage, apparently it means manly. Oh, does it? I, I'm very impressed by your 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 impassive reaction mm. to that line. So thank you for that, uh, Rob, uh, Robert, Bobby. That's uh, okay. Um, so uh, you've <laughs> actually got three shows coming up as part of Hove Grown. Yes, I have. Uh, we're going to probably talk about them individually as we go on, but mm. just to kick us into that, what are what are they called? Well, the umbrella title, it's interesting you say about um, themes kind of developing without you really thinking, yeah. sort of um, consciously, because um, I've done these three shows over the last um, period of, uh, oh, was it? Um, well, since uh, 2010 I did the first of these, um, and um, coming to, I, I decided I wanted to do all three of them in the Hove Grown thing, and I thought... What is there a linking theme? And I thought, um, I thought maybe beyond the pale would be a good thing. And I thought, well, <laughs> one of them's the king of Denmark. He's not exactly beyond beyond the pale, is he? But um, he, then I thought, well, widening it slightly, there. How about men without friends? You know, even as the king of Denmark, Claudius is. Um, you know, he hasn't got many friends, and likewise the. Um, the uh, traffic warden in High Viz and the um, the guy in the trials of Harvey Matuso. Sorry, what was the original question? Well, Just I'm guessing. General... <laughs> well, you artfully jumped onto the, my next question, which oh. is about the um, the umbrella title of Men Without Friends, because there must be, I wonder, a certain amount of at least ego, possibly even cheerful arrogance about delivering a one-person show, a, a solo show of an hour, because you're you're commanding or even demanding a lot of attention from the audience. And so some of the thing that I liked about this umbrella title was that it softens that edge of perceived arrogance of men without friends because you're not claiming that there's any um, greatness particularly about these characters. Um, 
And so there's a, there's a nice cynicism about they, them all being called men without friends. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I realised that somehow I'm kind of drawn to characters who are unpopular, I suppose. Dare I ask where that comes from? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if it's a sort of Jewish thing, or maybe <laughs> it's just a sort of my own personal uh, lack of self-esteem, or, or who knows. Um, my wife Jenny was uh, saying to me the other day, which, which of these characters do you think is most you? And um, I thought, obviously there's some of me in all of them, both in the writing and the acting, but I thought probably Claudius, the King of Denmark, you know, I've never actually murdered anyone and no. taken their throne, but uh, well, I suppose partly because with the other two I put on an accent, uh, which is very different from my own. Yes. Um, with with something rotten, the thing about Hamlet's uncle, um, it's, it's more or less my voice, uh, a bit sort of posher and, and more kind of um, heightened perhaps, but... But yeah, um, yeah. I, th I think I think I'm more Claudius than than Quint or Harvey Matusa. Quint's a, a, a great name. I'm because I'm a bit of a film geek. Mm. I'm inevitably going to ask: Is it a Jaws reference? Yes, it is. Thank you for that. Um, I guess I'm really fascinated. Also, you mentioned a little bit while ago about the difference between. Uh, well, you mentioned how you approach it as a writer and a actor. Of course, you are both for these shows. You are both the writer and the actor, uh, not always directing yourself. Uh, I understand that at least two of the shows have had some form of direction from other people. Yeah. You, yes. you have self-directed one of them. So do those people argue? Does the writer and the actor ever have a disagreement? Does the actor ever think, I really can't read these lines? They don't have disagreements as such, but over the course of writing these three shows, and there was one, one before called The Death of Nelson, which I retired because I was getting too long in the tooth for the quite youthful character that was at the centre of it. Um, but um, um, as I've gone on with writing these things, I've become aware that one thing is it's not necessarily any easier to learn lines just because you've written them. Yeah. You might get a bit more kind of indulgence from, from the writer, <laughs> but um, it's still no easier. But if the writer gets more adept at writing and perhaps um, putting in some kind of tricks that maybe make it a bit easier, it, well... With the most recent Something Rotten, of course, while I'm not trying to write like Shakespeare, I have license to sort of use some kind of Shakespearean-type tricks. You know, you, you can do a lot more with um, uh, alliteration and, and things like that. It's a Shakespearean structure, so the way you're delivering the dialogue. Yeah, yeah. What's, what's that, that one, one, one thing that, uh, that he says when he's recalling, berating his... His, his brother, the, the former king, saying, how, how long have I waited? How long have I done your drudgery, snipped your ribbons, stripped your sa statues, sat on your committees so you could be free for your hunting and your warring and your whoring? <laughs> so do you find that you are standing on the shoulders of Shakespeare or do you find that you're occasionally literally stealing from Shakespeare? Um... Uh, 
Well, I mean, every writer, I think, is standing on the shoulders of Shakespeare. Obviously, <laughs> if you take a Shakespearean character um, and uh, put him in a play of your own, you're doing so more than usually. Yeah. Um, like I say, uh, I've not attempted to write it like Shakespeare. I think that would be dreadful. What I've done is is write write him so that he doesn't sound modern, but he sounds sort of accessible but with a sort of flavour of several hundred years ago and the kind of Shakespeare uh, a, a taste of Shakespeare about it I think and I think judging by what people say that I've, I've got the balance Fantastic. right Fantastic um, What was your first experience of Shakespeare? Oh ah good question um, I think it was well, I must have seen stuff on the TV, but the f I think the first live thing I went to was actually when I was in the sixth form at school, and we went on a coach trip to Chichester to yeah. see Much Ado About Nothing, which had uh, Gerald Harper in it, who was a who was big in the seventies, yeah. and uh, Gemma Jones, who was also um, big in the seventies, and the Duchess of Duke Street, and she's still doing stuff and Duchess it was, of Duke Street yeah yeah but um, more recently in Spooks and uh, and other things but uh, that was that was fabulous and uh, I remember everyone was sort of blown away by it I think because we we'd just we just started um, doing English A-level and um, actually I'd enjoyed doing Romeo and Juliet in class when we were doing O-level but yeah. I think we didn't go and see anything and we went, went to see this thing at Chichester and I think everyone was just amazed at how accessible it was and how it didn't need any explaining um, didn't even need to read I don't know if there was a, um, a, synopsis. a synopsis in the programme because yeah. I, I couldn't afford to get one yeah. but um you know, it was just there. It was completely, we all loved it. And I think people talk a lot about ways to make Shakespeare relevant. And you can do it in all kinds of different costumes and, and styles and stuff. But I think the bottom line is if the actors understand what they're saying, um, they should be able to put it over to the audience so that the, un the audience understands yeah, saying. it's sometimes, even today, it's a surprise for some audiences that Shakespeare can be accessible, mm. that it is relevant. We we tend to be a little bit fearful of it. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, um, you have said before that every actor should have a, a one-person show up their sleeves, mm. which is a bold statement, I guess, mm. uh, but... Is it something like uh, having a calling card that you, you literally can go, this is what I do, this is what I am? Yeah, a calling card, I think, but also it gives you uh, a little bit of power or yeah. allows you to uh, claw back a bit of tap power because as actors, we are completely dependent on other people. Not Well, if you're also a writer, then you've got a bit more power. Um, power to at least create your own work like this. Um, otherwise, you are, as I say, completely dependent on other people to cast you. And if other yeah. people, I mean, you know, I started writing these things because um, people weren't casting me and stuff. Yes. And I thought, right, well, I'll do it myself then. It's so difficult to get cast anyway. Yeah. I mean, the old cliche of how many percentages of an actor's community are out of work. Mm. So it's it makes sense to create your own work, especially down in Brighton, where there are a reasonable amount of spaces to show that work. 
Uh, we were speaking before, earlier, before recording, about working in Brighton as opposed necessarily to working in London. How long have you been working in Brighton? Uh, as an actor? Yeah. Um, well, I started... I started out doing stuff at the New Venture Theatre in the mid-90s. Yeah. Um, and pro- then, at that time, I, I started doing it more because I thought it would help me with my writing. Yes. Than that I particularly wanted to do acting. I'd, I'd given up a, an, a, a drama degree at university and decided to go into journalism instead years before that I think I had um, a somewhat similar journey uh, to you I did an no. acting degree um, up in Stratford-upon-Avon in fact oh, yeah. and that had the desired effect of stopping me acting for about uh-huh. eight years yeah. and then I also joined the New Venture Theatre and right. that was also with a half an eye on going how is this going to develop my writing mm. how can I begin to create stuff uh, so yeah, you were on that same sort of journey yeah um, there, there was a 12-year gap between um, between dropping out of that university course and actually starting acting again. Um, so I joined the new venture. I was in a production of Twelfth Night um, with absolutely no experience doing Shakespeare. But <laughs> what part did you play? Antonio. Oh, excellent. Uh, which is a really good part and very much overlooked. Um, but though I was I was very far from the kind of um, big beefy salty sea, sea dog that I think Shakespeare wants. Yeah. Um, especially as the guy who was playing uh, the boy I'm so fond of was sort of towered above me and really was <laughs> big and beefy. But anyway, um, in time. Um, I found that the acting came to have sort of parity of importance to me and I decided I I really wanted to be doing it professionally and I didn't want to be going into into the offices of the latest magazine every day and um, when I should be writing and putting on shows. Uh, And in fact, I was putting on a show at the Arts Club, if you remember that. Yes. it was the summer of 2000, and I idiotically scheduled it for a two-week run. Um, two days would have been sufficient, I think. Um, and uh, scheduled it up against the Euro 2000 competition. Um, did you get a lot of audience? Um, some nights we did okay. Uh, there were a couple of nights where... Um, we cancelled against my wishes, but we cancelled uh, yeah. because only two people had turned up. Um, and oh, there was one night where there was football and torrential rain, and that was one of the nights we cancelled. Um, and I thought <laughs> um, I should be I should be at home every day trying to drum up business, get the press interested and stuff. Instead, I'm having to go and uh, do all this work on this magazine um, and. Um, so so I, I quit the job, um, well, shortly thereafter anyway, and uh, that was when I decided to go professional and take a vow of poverty. And so then you begin to create your own work. Um, and what was the, because uh, you've spoken before about the the other show that you wrote, yeah. you, um, The Death of Nelson, yes. which isn't who we might think it's about. No, it's not. Um, the Nelson of the title refers A to Nelson Mandela and B to a child named after him yes. by a kind of um, radical parents at university in the 80s. And the show is about their friend who was more kind of conservative at the time who yes. they, they make 
godfather to their son and it's a series of conversations between him and the child um, over a period of years during which he kind of you hear about the way the parents have become more conservative and, and they end up uh, as as um, apparatchiks of the Blair administration and um, whereas uh, he the main character he becomes a journalist he, yes. he gets more kind of left-wing as it goes on and um, comes to be disapproved of by the parents because he's um, he's taking his godfather role seriously and sort of uh, trying to explore elements of Christianity and sort of like humanism, I suppose, yeah. just just doing that kind of thing that uh, someone who's just been appointed to give presents twice a year um, <laughs> decides to do and uh, gains the disapproval of his uh, the child's increasingly conservative parents because he's doing his job or his yeah. job. Yeah, you spoke about um, that play being a series of conversations, which is something to unpack slightly yeah. in terms of. If you're doing, let's say, on average, an hour-long show, an yeah. hour-long solo show, mm. it's not necessarily a person speaking for an hour. Their sense of how you're going to give it scenes or change the pace of it or change mm. the tone of it sounds less like a lecture. Absolutely. Um, I think I think one-person shows get a bit of a bad name because a lot of them are just sort of lectures, someone just standing there for an hour or so and it can get very wearying not least on the eyes if you're just looking at the same bright picture for sure. 60 minutes yeah. or something so I, I always chop my things up I haven't yet encountered a subject where I thought it would be better you know um, form should follow content I feel and if there was something where I felt I could just talk on stage straight through yes then then i'm sure i would do it but so far i've not not found the um found a reason to do that um the death of nelson was um by far the most kind of strenuous thing because there was no acknowledgement of the audience the only person i was talking to was the unseen child um at various stages once one he's he's out in front he's in his his cot and in uh, two of the scenes the sort of book ending scenes he's kind of um, a teenager who's he's actually on a um, he's on a life support machine because he's uh, had a, a, a drug overdose um and and it actually sort of starts when the guy's about 40 and then it goes goes back to 18 years earlier or something yes and that that's why I say I was I was getting too long in the tooth for it because um to the illusion that uh, I was uh, 17 at one point was getting a bit too hard to sustain so that's when I looked around for something else to do but yes it was um, it was very challenging because um, there was no ability as in the three more recent shows to be able if necessary to say where was I indeed um, I went to see, um, oh, ah, what's her name? Uh, Terry Ann uh, uh, Falcone yes. yesterday uh, in her one woman show. And um, I was particularly struck. I mean, she was, she was brilliant doing everything. Particularly struck, there was one where one of her characters goes on a, a date, sort of internet date. Yeah. And the stuff she was doing where she was pretending to listen to the guy yeah. you know, with increasing credulity because he turns out to be 
just awful, <laughs> was just wonderful, her, her use of the silence, which is what I had to do, of course, in this play, and probably, um, you know, not as... Um, adeptly but uh, certainly that was a large part of it you know for instance there was there was a bit where the the, the boy is, is um, makes him listen to him singing free nelson mandela yeah. so he's got to sort of like uh, try and look like he's enjoying it for for two verses okay so that that uh, lends to another important point about the structure of a solo show a one-hour show in that if you're the only body on stage mm. uh how restrictive are the restrictions? How joyful are the restrictions? Do you find that, you talk about form following structure, mm. do you find that for a certain piece it should only be that one voice? Would you ever have a piece in which that actor plays more than one part? Um, well, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. There, there were, there's, there's always bits where I'm sort of, to some extent or other, impersonating people and it depends on the character how good they are at doing that with Quint the traffic warden he's uh, there's always a lot of Quint in his impersonations so it's always the character telling us about the other characters it's not that we visit another character um, does that make sense? yeah yeah, yeah. exactly but uh, King Claudius is rather more adept at impersonating people like his tutor and yes. his, his kind of oafish brother um, but yeah Okay, so let's um, uh, look at those plays. So we're talking about Quint, which is from a play called High Viz. That's right, uh, yes. Which is uh, about a traffic warden who is um, having a bit of a bad day. Well, he's having a bad couple of weeks, in fact, <laughs> because he is he's being stalked by a guy with an air rifle. He keeps uh, shooting darts at him, uh, which end up in um, Quint's ample backside. And um, so he gets taken off duty, um, <laughs> frontline duty, and is very resentfully being um, compelled to teach wardenry to a bunch of new recruits, i.e. the audience. Excellent. And so um, is this uh, something of a wish fulfilment or wanting to uh, stalk a traffic warden, or is it a bit of a perceived wish fulfilment for the audience? Uh well, who knows why people come? Um, <laughs> I, it's no, I don't wish to stalk traffic wardens, though I do observe them with interest. Um, I was, I was uh, interested the other day to see uh, two traffic wardens, a man and a woman, from my window, and he was wearing a high vis vest and she wasn't, and uh, I thought. Oh, that sort of uh, that probably means she's being trained because actually in the company in the uh, play is a is a fictional one called Fraser Tooley Parking. Yeah. Um, and uh, so having made a fictional thing, I can make up the whole regime and the sure, training process and stuff. And according to Quint, you get three days mentaling on the streets as part of the training. And I thought, oh, she's, she's, she's having a three days mentaling. She's not got the high vis on, no, so no. she's not the target for anyone. You said just then about um, who knows why audiences come to see certain shows, which reminds me of something that I wanted to ask you earlier about how... Are you able to provide the hook for an audience? Indeed, a name like a title like High Viz mm. is 
probably going to hook our eye of oh what's that about the fact that the, the lead character is a traffic warden is going to be at least uh, piquing our interest hmm. so how much of that is in your writing that you're aware that you might have a very exciting story to tell but it may not be immediately interesting to a member of the audience who's only got one evening to spare hmm. and only one five quid to spare so how do you incorporate that into your the D- DNA of your writing I'm aware of it. Yeah. Um, I, I probably wouldn't not do a thing because I thought it was going to be a hard sell. Yeah. But I've I've had the experience of an almost impossible sell with the death of Nelson, where you, firstly, you had to get over to people the fact that it's not about the guy with the eye patch. <laughs> yeah. Um, then you've got and that long complicated explanation I gave to you earlier about what it was about I used to have to go through that every time I told anyone about so you it. D- never had an elevator pitch so to speak. No you know like uh, high vis I can say it's about a traffic warden being stalked by a guy with an air rifle. Bang. Um, uh, something rotten is um, is about Hamlet's uncle or slightly longer it's the events of Hamlet seen from the point of view of his murderous uncle. Yes. Um Trials of Harvey Matuso is is a bit more challenging. Uh, yeah, it's 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 not as challenging as um, the death of Nelson. No. But it still helps, for instance, if people have heard of McCarthy and McCarthyism. Yes. Though um, certainly he's coming back into the news with uh, President Trump misappropriating the term. And the fake news. And yeah. Showing that he clearly doesn't know anything about the subject. <laughs> but uh, maybe I could do a performance at the White House, who knows. But um, the um, the phone was, was actually dis- depressingly silent when they were doing the um, thing for the inauguration, but, but never mind. No, no, uh, give it time, you know. Well, um, he, he's going to be around for the full eight years. I think so. You've, you've yeah. got time. Yeah. Um. I, I have actually made some, some inquiries into possibly doing it at the, um, the Houses of Parliament, maybe um, in one of their function rooms when, yes. when he comes for his state visit well that we'll, we'll probably keep you on for another podcast for that you know okay. that will be uh, exciting to hear yeah but um yeah i mean you you can't you can't write one of these things without being aware of how you're going to sell it to people yeah um because as you say people might have one evening free they might not be at all interested in going to the theater at all which a lot sure. of people aren't unfortunately yeah. and also uh, i talked about you know, giving you a bit of power, writing your own stuff, putting on your own stuff, but you've still got to convince venues that they should put you on. And these people yeah. get hundreds of emails every week from people who are telling them how great their show is. So let's talk about how great your your shows are. So we've spoken very briefly about High Viz, uh, mm. and we have spoken before about Something Rotten. We haven't spoken much about the third show in this triple, which is, uh, as you say... It's inspired by McCarthyism. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to let you pronounce the, uh, the this name because I always panic <laughs> that I'm not going to mispronounce it. It's the trials of Harvey Matuso. Is is he real? Was yes. He, okay, so tell me about him. Um, he was a man who was a member of the um, Communist Party in New York just after the war. Yeah. Uh, very keen communist until he either became disillusioned or, well, I really don't know what motivated him in anything, to be honest, but uh, he started 
dropping dimes to the FBI uh, and actually getting paid for doing this. Uh, $40 a month he was getting to tell them who was at meetings and to take pictures at May Day parades and yeah. stuff. Um, having started in on this um, thing, he um, well, the communists got wise to him. They kicked him out, and um, then he had uh, felt he had carte blanche, I suppose, to really um, go for his new career of um, helping in the whole red hunting thing. So yeah. he ended up testifying in front of all kinds of committees, every committee that there was, anti-subversion committee. Um, you know, there was the. Um, well, various bodies, including HUAC and including McCarthy's committee, which were not the same thing. It's it's often perceived that McCarthy ran HUAC. It sure. has nothing to do with it. Okay. Um, but, um, yeah, Matuso for several years, was a kind of star witness for these people, a, a McCarthyite supergrass, basically. And then he had a change of heart, Possibly a crisis of conscience, possibly a crisis of, uh, oh, my profile is dipping, uh, maybe I need to do something to, whatever. And the point is, he went public with the fact that he had made up most of his testimony. Well, that's interesting. You talk about perhaps his motivation was that his profile was dipping. So there's something about his ego that drives him. Well, I spent a year looking through his archives at Sussex University. Yeah. Uh, I never managed to find out exactly what motivated him, and he gave a lot of different reasons over the years. Um, I was lucky enough to meet a guy called Daniel Snowman, who was Matuso's producer at the BBC in wow. the late 60s. He, he did some uh, broadcasts for the BBC because he, he lived here for seven years in England. Yes. Um, and I said to Daniel, what do you think motivated him? And he said, I think he just he just craved the limelight. So there was almost a Walter Mitty sort of idealism to him. Yes, I yes, but I I think in a sense he was he was a man who would be more understood by our age than, you know, his. No one in the 50s, if you'd said, what do you want to be? They would have said, I want to be famous. Sure, yeah. Whereas that's a, a common a common aspiration is, now. As a writer, does that sense of a lack of logic that you can't get a grip on him, uh, that there are eight or nine possible motivations to his uh, actions, is that something that's actually quite exciting? Oh, that that's the lack of logic explains something about him or is that a, a element of frustration? I suppose it is... It's exciting in a way, but it is it is frustrating. Yeah. Um, there's... There's a thing in the archives where he... It's, it's a thing where he... A document he wrote where he says, I am going to immerse myself in the anti-communist crusade in order to bring down the system from within and in later years he said yeah this you see I wrote this at the time when I started my work um, just and I wrote this down so that people would know but the point is it's not signed and dated there's nothing it's not witnessed there's nothing to say that actually he wrote it at the time so the suspicion is that he wrote it later because he didn't Oh, did he? Hmm. I'm trying to think if he claimed in his book that this that he was doing this, 
or whether it was later. I think it was later in the, in the late sixties when he was doing his his broadcast yeah. that he that he put that retroactive spin on it. So when you were halfway through writing this, or when you were beginning to format the script and continue to do your research, did anything ever come up in your research that justified? decisions that you'd already made that uh, you'd decide that he was this sort of character and then something would come up in the archive go, that's perfect, that's what I need Well, what was interesting was that at first, though I decided to do this thing, reading through his hundreds of letters, no, not not all of them but yeah. sort of he, he and his mother exchanged certainly when he was when he was in jail and when he was in, in London um they exchanged letters pretty much on a daily basis. And for quite a while at the beginning of the process, I f would often find myself thinking, I'm not sure how much I like this guy. Um, you know, there's 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 approving of or yes. disapproving, but there's also a sense of whether, whether I liked him or not. And, and for a while I didn't. And gradually he grew on me. <laughs> and I, I came to be quite fond of him through what I was, I was reading. But I did have a niggling kind of thing for instance i i wondered he was married a lot of times and one of the longest marriages was to this uh woman uh, an avant-garde musician called anna lockwood or she calls herself now anya lockwood yeah but anyway he was with her for seven years and then when they went back to america she suddenly left him and i thought hmm well, that's funny. Yeah. And I thought, oh, is there something there I don't want to know about? Um, and I thought, oh, I wonder if maybe she, I don't know, maybe maybe he spent seven years kind of oppressing her and then she, she never really liked him or, or what. But uh, And the change of location gives her her freedom. Well, maybe. But um, I was, there weren't a lot of letters from her, but one time she was in Sweden early on in the relationship doing... Um, I don't know, some concerts or something, and she'd sent him a few letters from there, and it was, I found these letters quite late in the day, and it was clear from those letters that, that at one time at least she did absolutely adore him. Yeah. And um, and it was good to know that. It was also good uh, talking to Daniel, the, the producer, um, to sense that he was also still fond of him, and he'd kept in touch with him right up until his death. Um what Daniel said, it was brilliant soundbite, um, was uh, he said, in large doses, he could be a pain in the arse. <laughs> in small doses, he was wonderful. Which neatly leads me to my next question. These men without friends, mm. you've alluded to not particularly being fond of Harvey when you were first beginning to read about him, but these men without friends, could you be their friend? Um. Yeah, yeah. Well, I could probably be Harvey's friend and Claudius's friend, probably more than Quint. I don't know how I, how much, how That's well I'd get on with Quint. Already fascinating because Harvey is a professional liar. In uh, Claudius is very likely a murderer. Absolutely uh, a murderer. Quint Quint seems to have the less the least psychopathic um yes tendencies. yes well it's ah is is it is interesting isn't it um and i was watching a, a film or something the other day and ah i wish i could remember what it was but i remember being conscious of the fact that i enjoyed the company on screen of 
the less nice character. Yeah. And I found that quite troubling in a way. Why do I why do I why am I more at home when this person is on screen when the other person who is actually much less offensive? It's bizarre. But um I think there is a sort of line that I won't cross. Um, I can do shows about all these people because there's something human I can find in them, and I don't mind finding the humanity. Yeah. Like with Claudius, for instance, I already, when, when I see Hamlet now, I instantly sympathise more with Claudius than I yes. did before. Um I, you know, similarly, I wouldn't want to do, although God knows there's plenty of dramatic potential there, I wouldn't want to do a um, show about the aforementioned uh, Mr. Trump uh, for the same reason. (laughs) Although, you know, I've uh, I've been waiting several months to to maybe get some kind of glimpse of of something that's at all likeable about him. Just sort of crave in a way. I, I I want to have some kind of hope for the future, and there's just no sign of it. Well, that that's um, that's also a lovely soundbite. Uh, <laughs> I what do I want to speak to you next? I we spoke about this in the last podcast, um, and years ago when I was a kid, I when I was waiting for a bus, uh, and no bus would turn up. Eventually, you make the decision to start walking. At which point, invariably, when you're caught between two different uh, bus stops, nine buses go past. Yes. So then, at the age of 11, I invented the um, the digital readout that tells you how long the next bus is going to come along. So you can make an informed decision mm-hmm. as to whether or not you're going to um, uh, walk or not. So my question to you, then, is... Uh, what did you invent that somebody had got to before you? Or indeed, what book did you write? What film idea did you come up with that you didn't actually get around to doing and somebody else has got there first? Well, I've got one that no one has got around to yet, but I'm sure they will. Um, when I'm watching football on TV with my dad, yeah. I very often say, oh, I can't keep up with, with which end is which, because you very yeah. rarely see the whole pitch, you know. And he thinks I'm a complete idiot, that I, I can't, you know. And I say, what if they had... A kind of detachable things made of foam rubber or something they could put on the top of the goalposts. Yes. So Manchester United's would have a, a, a red one or whatever colours they're playing yes. in and uh, the other end would have a different coloured one so you'd know instantly whenever the sh- goal was in, in shot which which end you're looking at. And he, he thinks I'm an idiot and I, and I say, but you know, it, it could have a sponsor's name on sure, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, they'd, they'd make more money from advertising. He thinks I'm an idiot. Someday someone is going to do it and make a fortune from it and then he won't think I'm an idiot anymore. No. And that makes complete sense to me. Every time I'm uh, watching tennis, mm-hmm. I get confused when the players switch sides because the camera's always from uh, one end of the court. And so particularly in tennis where I think oh okay that that one's a tall blonde athletic curly haired one when they both are the tall blonde mm-hmm. curly haired one then I get confused yeah uh, okay so that's what you've invented which uh, now that you've given that away on a podcast is absolutely um, going to be taken by somebody else and somebody else is going to be making a fortune 
Um, well, well, I, 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 I hope that you've you've got the the, the reach uh, that that might happen because then that means also that millions of people will be hearing about my show. At Fantastic. least, at least seven people. Right. Okay. Um, uh, possibly not a million just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so my secret's safe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although you know, obviously the the times and dates and prices of your shows are not safe. We'll, we'll be we'll be chatting about that towards the end mm. of the uh, podcast. Uh, what I also wanted to ask you is: Is there a book you're reading at the moment, or a film that you've recently seen, or another podcast that you're listening to, or a play that you've recently seen that we should know about? Oh well, now, mm, <laughs> ah, gosh. Um, well, in the immediate thing of the Hove Grown thing, as I say, um, Terry Ann's play, um, one woman show, it was very good. Yeah. And so was a play called Cream I saw last night by Pip O'Neill. Yes. Not quite sure why it was called Cream, but never mind. It, it was I was in both cases incredibly impressed by the writing. Yeah. And and the um, the performances. Um, book wise, I'm currently reading a book. Um, which is called 1776, I yeah. think. Yeah, should be able to remember that date because obviously it's about the American War of Independence. I, I, I think it's a bit like uh, that um, James Shapiro book about Shakespeare. What's that called? Is that 1599, was it? Or Possibly, yes. Something? Uh, I can't I, remember. I the one few... where he's, he just sort of concentrated on one year in, in Shakespeare's life. I and see. I think in this case, the guy's concentrating on one year, the most iconic year of the War of Independence. So this, this research, are you going to be doing a one-man... War of Independence. So. Um, I haven't yet been inspired to do that. No. Uh, it's just uh, something that Jenny gave me for uh, Christmas, and um, I am, you know, obviously interested in history and yeah. uh, not least American history. Um, the first uh, part of it is is about the taking of Boston, which was done more or less um, without any kind of loss of life, or almost entirely without, because basically, apparently, the British were holed up in Boston, and uh, Washington had his troops outside, and uh, the troops were very uh, ragtag bunch of people, and they had virtually no gunpowder, and... Um, what happened was that they they took this area of high ground nearby and because they'd got these cannons which someone had had to go from Canada to get that sure. they'd captured and they they started setting them up on this area of high ground and which neither side had taken prior to that point and they Washington was hoping that they would draw the British out of Boston to have a pitched battle. In fact, yeah. what happened was, as soon as they saw them setting out their cannon on the hill, they said, oh, God, that's it. Right, <laughs> we'd better evacuate. Yeah. And they just, they went. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, the other question I wanted to ask you is a question that you may not want to answer uh, because it may be another secret that you don't want to give away. Mm. Um, in Brighton, obviously, there's lots of lovely um, coffee shops and bars where one might finish their next one person show uh where are we likely to find you uh, is there a, a sort of a hangout that you go to a coffee shop or a pub or a bar that you work out on your next manuscript not really no um i can't really afford to 
have posh coffee out. I don't oh, know yeah. how anyone else can. Yeah. Um, you know, I enjoy it when I have it, but uh, I don't very often. My wife spends all her time in coffee shops writing. <laughs> um, and it's quite sensible in a way because at home there's so many other things to distract you. Um, but I don't have a laptop at the moment. In fact, I'm sort of reduced because the one I had died, and even that couldn't run on batteries, so well, I couldn't really yeah. <laughs> take it very far. Um, currently dependent on various other sources of computing. And pen um, and paper. That, well, I've always continued to like pen and paper. Yeah. Um, I quite often start off with pen and paper and then type in what I've done and refine it. And then what I quite like is the process then of printing it out. And um, if you want to know where you'd find me doing some writing, most likely it would be on a bench outside All Saints Church, which is diagonally opposite my... Um, my flat in the yeah. drive and uh, if uh, on a summer's day I quite often sit there with a manuscript and scribble all over it I'm exactly the same way as a writer I have to um, print out the first or second draft and then graffiti all over mm. it have arguments with myself about why is that character doing that thing yeah. or indeed ripping bits of uh, paper out because that scene actually deserves to be a bit later in the narrative mm. etc so yeah the physical copy of uh, a second draft or a third draft is invaluable that might be almost where we're going to be ending it there, Rob, Bobby, mm -hmm. Robert. And uh, so we do a quick reminder of the shows. That they're three one-hour shows, but they're on consecutive evenings. You've got High Viz on the 29th of March, uh, Something Rotten on the 30th, and Charles and Harvey Matuso on the 31st, all at 9pm. Uh, yes. And uh, all at the Duke Box Theatre, is that right? Or is they that, are, yes. They are. Yes. And so let me get this right. So the tickets are £6 each, although you can get a, a £10 for two shows and £12 for three. Correct. Um, yes. So that's kind of where we come trundling to the end of our little chat. Thank you so much. It's been delightful to talk to you. Pleasure. And um, sounds like a really exciting. Are you ever going to do an evening of all three shows in the same evening? Or would that kill you? Well, <laughs> it would have to be an all-day event, I think. <laughs> Otherwise, it would go into the uh, small hours. Um, I would have no objection to doing that, but so far no one has asked me to do that, and I haven't yet... Uh... It's a question of whether anyone would pay to uh, <laughs> pay to attend yeah. uh, all three shows on one day. And maybe when I'm very famous, if that happens soon, Absolutely. then they will... Uh... They will ask me to do that. It may well happen soon. We can find out more about you on www.bobbycohen.co.uk. Correct. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. The Cast Iron Theatre Podcast, presented by Andrew Allen, edited by Michelle Donkin. Music is Chapstick by Everett Almond. Check us out at Twitter at cast underscore iron acts, Facebook, ironclad cast iron, all one word, and our website is castironweebly.com. <laughs>